0: I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest We've Seen Things You People Wouldn't Believe edition. It's Wednesday, October 11th, 2017 on today's show. Blade Runner 2049 is the sequel to the much revered and path-breaking sci-fi classic. This one returns Harrison Ford as Deckard, a man tasked with killing synthetic humans when they get out of line. I'll watch what I say. The old one was directed by Ridley Scott. The new one is directed by Denis Villeneuve and stars also Ryan Gosling. And then Transparent is the Amazon streamer starring Jeffrey Tambor, Gabby Hoffman, an incredible ensemble cast? I can't name them all. The sharply observed dramedy of Manners is returning for a fourth season. Finally, Harvey Weinstein was an old-fashioned mogul, a force of nature, a force of culture, combining taste and power to create a generation of classic indie movies. It turns out he is also a serial sexual abuser we discuss. Joining me today is Isaac Butler. Hey, Isaac. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Stephen. Uh, I should say, Isaac, you are a uh, Slate contributor, you're a theater director, and author of The World Only Spins Forward, An Oral History of Angels in America, uh, co-authored with uh, Dan Kois. Hey, welcome back.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you. And, uh, and of course, Dana Stevens is Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hey. All right, well, let's dig right in. The original Blade Runner was neither a critical nor a commercial hit when it first came out in 1982, it was a hybrid movie that confused, frankly, I think a lot of people. um, uh, It combined noir and sci-fi elements, and it was about hybrid creatures, so-called replicants or lab-grown human slaves. Uh, And it told the story of the man tasked with hunting them down and killing them when they went rogue. The film was directed by Ridley Scott. It starred Harrison Ford, Sean Young, Rutger Hauer. It's become, in the years since, it's become really a Classic. A sequel now arrives, directed by Denis Villeneuve. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. He has scored already a contemplative sci-fi hit with the movie Arrival. This new version stars Ryan Gosling, Blade Runner, in search of answers about both his own origins and it's Blade Runner about life itself, right? The existential noir uh, is back. Let's listen to a clip. I should say, by the way, this is uh, this is from the trailer.
1: I thought you might be able to help me with the case. Any idea where I could find him? You police plan on taking me here?
0: I would much prefer that to the alternative.
1: (laughs) Every leap of civilization was built off the back of slaves Replicants are the future, but I can only make so many. I had the lock, and he has the key. I think I found him.
0: That's not possible. All right. Well, uh, Dana, there is a lot to discuss here, including I I would love to hear everybody's feelings about the original movie, um, which many people regard as as maybe the greatest sci-fi movie ever made, and other people regard as a portentous mess. I think I switch back and forth every time I see it. But uh, but let's start at the most uh, natural starting place, which is what do you think of Blade Runner 2049?
2: This occupies an unusual relationship to the original, right? It's not... It is a sequel, but it's not part of a franchise. And the if if nothing else, you can say this about the original original it 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 abides, right? <laughs> I mean, it has persisted in the cultural imagination. It's become this kind of cult classic. Whether it's a good movie or not is almost immaterial to how influential it's been in science fiction. You know, the the look of it, the sound of it, um, the the philosophical concerns. I just I feel like Blade Runner almost started a new era in science fiction, and uh, and so it's a very big task, obviously, to come back to that world 32 years later and try to make it come alive again so does this movie succeed at that to me not really uh, it's certainly visually dazzling and orally dazzling as you could hear from from the soundtrack that is a very pervasive omnipresent soundtrack in, in that clip and throughout the movie uh, and it stuns you as, as a spectacle but to me as storytelling it did not really hang together I found the ending which I don't want to spoil but we can sort of hint at in our conversation very disappointing what else? I mean, Ryan Gosling is is he is actually quite good as the as as K, the the main replicant character in the story, the the Blade Runner. But does he make sense in the Blade Runner universe? I'm not completely sure. This always felt to me like a um, in a way a, a huge hugely portentous piece of fan service. And I'm sorry if that sounds really mean. I enjoyed its unfurling at the time, but it stayed with me almost zero. But we should mention that the production design, Mm. I think we can all agree that the production design and cinematography are absolutely dazzling. And I think the only Oscar I'm going to care about this year, I I give myself one every year, will be Roger Deakins getting the cinematography award. Because he's been up something like 13 times. He's never won. And... uh, and if there's one thing that stands mm-hmm. out about this movie, it's the way that it builds the the future world, the 2049 world, and establishes it with the camera.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, we should mm. briefly maybe talk about Roger Deakins, right? Because Roger Deakins, who's the Coen brothers' primary cinematographer from Barton Fink on, you know, he did uh, Sicario, and I believe he also did Arrival, and he did this movie. And his work in, I mean, I guess now that Gordon Willis is dead, he's probably like one of the the great uh, uh, English language cinematographers. I mean, it's uh, the absolutely stunning.
0: I loved it, um, but not without complication. And I say this as someone who's gotten in trouble for having publicly dissed the first one. To honor the original Blade Runner, one should, uh, and to think about the new one in the context of honoring the old one, one should admit that it is an it was in its conception an anti-movie in some sense. It is not overly traditionally plotted it is not filled with action it is got it is it is it, the defining feature of, of that movie in addition to its stunning visuals and production values is the kind of noir longueur. if i'm pronouncing that word right longueurs of it or whatever i mean it's it's just a slow languid dreamy existentially mopey uh, film, which is its source of its greatness, filled with metaphysical pomp. It's a movie that completely deconstructs the notion of plot, hero, and villainy, and I think it deserves to stand forth as, as a masterpiece. So all of that said... You know, the screenwriters in Villeneuve had a huge task ahead of them, which is somehow honoring the memory of this original film, getting metaphysical pomp, you know, that the, and visual splendor as expected of them into it. And I was amazed at how they did it. I mean, there is, in fact, a kind of anti-movie, a totally dignified anti-movie at the heart of this one, Dana, which I found completely satisfying. I don't want to spoil anything about it, but it sets you up for a certain set of clichés that people pretend to find satisfying though I cannot believe they still find them actually satisfying and it totally fucking subverts it and bizarrely does manage to tell a kind of human story about what it is human beings will still existentially long for even when absolutely every facet of their lives is ringed by um, a, a, a kind of imagination and and corporeally servicing technology. So I, I just was I was blown away by it. Now it it its flaws are not hard to point out but they seem to spring from the 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 seed that was the original movie in a way that was completely honest and not overly devoted, by the way, um, Dana. I think to servicing fandom and the need for sequels, the degree to which this movie doesn't seem to conform to that was it, it floored me. I really admired it. I have to say, I was I was shocked. Ten minutes in, I thought I was going to regret the shit of, out of having to sit there for three hours, and I found it. I found it a weirdly moody and captivating film that kind of succeeded on its on its own um,
1: merits. I, I I feel like maybe I'm in between you two guys. I I, w- I will say I feel like I really liked the the film, and but the more I think about it, the more its um, uh, internal messiness and incoherence kind of. Um, comes to the fore is is I think what I feel like. I still like it. I'd still recommend it. I, I agree with Steven. Just go see it. But um, you know, there's there's certain ways in which the questions that's that it's asking about kind of what is real and what is human the human's relationship to the divine as we master the building blocks of life um, don't quite connect to its ideas of slavery and freedom as well as the original film's questions about what is a human do. I will say I think they did a great job of kind of expanding into the the future of, like, you know, taking the world of the original movie and expanding it into, like, what it would look like 30 years later is way more convincing than a lot of sequels or prequels or, you know, if you compare it to, like, the Star Trek movies, which take place before the original series, but they have, like, floating holograms and crazy touchscreen technology. Well, this actually has the janky technology from the original Blade Runner where everything looks a little broken. There's brands in the original Blade Runner that have since gone out of business that come back in the sequel. You know, they're, you know uh, uh, so I really enjoyed all of... Uh, all of that stuff. Yeah, the
2: the imagining of the future, I agree, was fantastic. And the the fact that we didn't have to start with some big title card explaining, like, there's been a this kind of disaster, and then this kind of thing happened. We, We have to just infer it from the setting.
1: I do think, though, that it's hard to talk about this without spoiling. I do think in the last act of the movie, there is an attempt to seed possible sequels that really screws up the film's denouement. And feels very studio noty, uh, oh, uh, and so there so is a way in for me. Oh, really? That's fascinating it's difficult to have a conversation about this movie uh, if you're not going to spoil anything, but it's a very clear scene where they're, they're sort of setting up something that does not happen in this movie that could easily happen in a sequel. And uh, uh, the end of the film starts to feel like a little chaotic, like it's going in a bunch of different directions at the same time without quite investing in any of them. much the way, you know, there's like biblical references in it and references to Nabokov and references to Kafka and all these other things that don't quite, Quite cohere. so there's a messiness that is hidden by how beautiful and carefully filmed wow. it is.
0: I see. I the one thing, Isaac, I don't, I don't disagree with any of the specifics there, but to me, at the heart of that is the thing that we can't spoil, and that to me landed. And once that landed, and I thought it was a daring fucking choice, right? I, I, and it and it and it's absolutely in keeping with the kind of anti movie. You know nobility of the first one. I felt as though the st- everything stray and weird, uh, uh, weirdly and maybe inconclusive about the movie did did wrap up dramatically, right? Um, and but the other thing I want to point to, and we cannot end a segment without talking about it, is um, in addition to the janky technologies, there's janky Harrison Ford, there's there's janky Rick Deckard, uh, returning. I, Dana, you, you, this was obligatory. It was obligatory in Star Wars. To me, it felt obligatory in Star Wars and did not feel obligatory here. I thought Harrison Ford prepared a lot to be in this film and looked like he had emotionally prepared to be in it. And I, I again, like cathexis set in for me about 30, 35 minutes into this movie. So all of my critical faculties went out the window. I was in love with him and his return as Rick Deckard. I thought he was tremendous good in this film.
2: Oh, yeah, I completely agree. He needed to be in it. It was not at all a cam- nostalgic cameo. Let's take a peek at Harrison Ford. It was really the character returning and playing a crucial role in the story. And he and Gosling actually had a real chemistry together. I wish he'd been in more of the movie. Yeah, I have no case to make against the the actors, the job they did, the uh, even the story that was constructed around them. I think there's, the things about this movie that I would take issue with is... It's it does seem like it's setting up sequel. I think it seems more like a studio product than the first one did and less kind of having the courage of its own convictions to be something strange and standalone. But maybe that's inevitable, given that it is itself a sequel. I think it's too long. It's too humorless. And uh, and I just think it loses Mm. energy. The energy kind of dissipated for me in the last the last few minutes and the ending was very sort of is that all there is but you know but i would send people people that feel strongly about the first one should absolutely go and see what happened to this story 20 30 years later can i say one one sort of thematic there was a science fiction sort of idea (laughs) expressed through a character or sort of a group of characters that that i really loved and if there are sequels i would like to see this explored and that was joy joy was amazing best part of the movie incredible right so joy is the is the what would you call her the digital girlfriend of Ryan Gosling's k the the main character who's a replicant and the sort of supposition in this future is that you can it's not unlike her spike jones's film her except that joy also has you know a physical manifestation as this kind of holographic projection and so she is a digital girlfriend who can be anything you want her to be this of course makes it sound like she's going to be all about uh, objectification and that she's going to be a mere kind of digital sex doll but in fact, she seems to be what the replicants were in the first Blade Runner, right? A sort of a um, non-human creation that's 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 vying for or striving toward or longing for humanity, and and she does seem to have some sort of emotional and intellectual life separate from the Ryan Gosling characters. She can shift appearance. She can uh, be sort of carried around in this little pocket-sized holder that will allow her to, to go out into the world, but that gives her certain limitations as to her mortality. You sort of learn those laws as you go along. And in a really, really wonderful, probably the best visual effect of the movie, and again, one that is truly expressing an idea, there are these giant joys, like I would say they're ten stories tall or something, these avatars of her, because of course she can be bought in duplicate, wandering the streets of this future Los Angeles, um, sometimes naked. One, one is dressed as a ballerina and is dancing in toe shoes. And so as people are, you know, moving through these murky, uh, futuristic post-apocalyptic spaces, there are these giant women walking among them, essentially selling digital avatars of themselves. And that Mm -hmm. is such a dark and fascinating and smart way of thinking about what the future of the commodification of sexuality might be Totally, yes. that uh, I really hope it gets explored more if there are more movies.
1: There's another scene in the film, which I won't spoil, in involving Joy that is like, uh, and it's largely wordless and it's one of the most beautiful, powerful things I've, I've, I've seen in cinema. The thing that I find interesting about this movie is the original Blade Runner has been so influential on cyberpunk and science fiction that the things it's influenced now influence its sequel. And that's mm-hmm i think one of the fascinating things to watch
0: yeah i completely agree okay well i think it's i think we, i think there are three thumbs up of varying degrees of enthusiasm but go see it blade runner 2049 and discuss it with us at facebook.com slash culture fest all right moving on
1: this episode is brought to you by snapple
0: I think we have some business, don't we, Isaac? Are you you doing? You're handling our business now. You're filling those shoes.
2: Is Isaac that much of a fop, Steve? Can he can he read the business today?
0: I well, I think of this really as a test. We'll determine it based on how well you do.
1: I I just want to say I'm a fop in all sorts of different <laughs> senses of the term. Um, First, our Slate Podcast Pick of the Week is Hit Parade, Chris Malamfy's brilliant podcast about the stories behind chart-topping hits. Chris is fascinated by how music becomes and stays popular. And so far, Hit Parade has examined the week the Beatles swept the entire Billboard Top 5 and the surprising history of UB40's Red Red Wine. Most recently, he took on the music industry's war against the retail single, which would contribute to the massive contraction in the music industry in the early 2000s. So check out Hip Parade in its own feed. Just search for Hip Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Also, uh, we'd like to let you know that Slate is putting on a really cool event in New York on November 8th. It's called the People vs. Trump Year One. Featuring Jamel Bowie, Isaac Chotner, Dahlia Lithwick, Julia Turner, and more, it's a series of one-on-one conversations with those at the forefront of politics, media, the law, and activism as they compare notes on the lessons, challenges, and victories they've seen over the past year and what they expect from the next. That's at 7.30 p.m. on November 8th at the New School Auditorium in New York. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets and information. In Slate Plus today, we'll be talking about how McDonald's ran afoul of Rick and Morty's rabid fan base. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. If you enjoy this podcast and find it valuable, joining Slate Plus is a great way to support us. For just thirty-five dollars for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing these shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad free versions of the show and other great slate shows and a ton of other great benefits, including extra segments each week. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to Slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Stephen, how did I do? You filled you filled
0: one shoe, maybe. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, but you've but Isaac, you know you've been a f you've been a fop for a long, long time.
2: He's heading toward UFOP status, <laughs> ultimate friend of the program.
0: I think he's got to go through SFOP first data. This is a, <laughs> a I, rigidly a, the, hierarchical yeah, uh, a organization. W- when, yeah.
1: when do I get a top hat and tails? That's all I'm wondering.
0: <laughs> On that note, Transparent is the TV program from the showrunner Jill Soloway. It follows the Pfefferman family as its beloved patriarch or ambivalently loved. Patriarch transitions from man to woman. Through three seasons, we followed the both malignantly narcissistic monsters and sympathetic human beings that each of the Pfeffermans is. The show is rapidly approaching classic status. What is it about? Other than what I've said already, it's about how living in the present uh, is impossible without also living in the past, which is always real and alive, all the way back to Nazi Germany. It's about a family pervaded by secrets and lies. It's about how gender and sex pervade everything we do. It is Non-dogmatic and smart dramedy of manners—I love it. Let's listen to a clip from season four. You're going to Israel.
2: Imagine. How many hours is that flight? 14, 15 hours? That's
1: no
0: idea. What? I think it's so cool you're teaching me. Oh, they're
2: it's great. great.
1: I love it. I love you know. What exactly are you going to be doing over there? In Israel.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, they call it.
2: Keynoting. The keynoting, and they use it as a
1: verb. the other no, no, no. "Judaism, Cold War, and Gender" is the name of my lecture. Wow. Triple oh. threat. <laughs>
0: Seriously. Oh. That is
2: cool. You guys, I think we should raise a it's glass. It's really
0: cool. All right. Mazels. Mazels. you your return to academia. Yeah, next year. to the
2: motherland. I would like to go to Israel okay, before I die. I planted a tree there. We no, all planted, we all planted the trees. there. No, 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 I think the, it's a scam. No, it's but not it's a scam. put all the money in planted We'd be like trees, like a so the next now. group has a place Sarah to plant them. Right? So it's in the negative. You went junior one. year? Yeah. It's my first hand job. Oh, my God.
0: Whatever else is true about the show, it wouldn't work if it weren't uh, very, very funny, which it just, to this day, to me, it remains. If it didn't work as a comedy, it wouldn't work as everything else else complicated that it is what do you think
1: yeah I I absolutely agree and I think um the third season was in many ways it's maybe least comic and I think there it returns there's a kind of comedy of manners that comes in in the fourth season uh, uh, as the Pfeffermans journey to Israel that I think is really fascinating I connect to the show in a whole bunch of different ways um in many ways, I connect to it through my younger brother who is both an observant Jew and trans and uh, uh, although he doesn't watch the show because he actually just finds the intercharacter dynamics too uncomfortable and, and and too painful but um I think it's really sharply written. it reminds me of all of my favorite uh, dysfunctional Jewish family characters uh, dramedy plays from the '90s that I used to go see in Washington D.C., and uh, I think it's it's a really wonderful work. It is also, as I you know argued in a piece for Slate, uh, a very important work of specifically Jewish art that is interested in the the this specific Jewish milieu of essentially secular Los Angeles wealthy Jews, uh, and is also thematically concerned in many ways with sort of the, the, the themes and ideas of kind of American Jewish art.
0: Yes, I absolutely totally agree. Um, that's, that's the kind of hidden, hidden heart of the show, um, uh, beneath the central MacGuffin of uh, Jeffrey Tambor transitioning. Dana, what about you? How do you feel about this TV show?
2: Oh, I just wish I'd been watching it all along now. I mean, my trajectory with it is that we talked about it back when it was one of those Amazon pilots, you know, on a menu of pilots that might or might not be picked up. I think, I, it, if I remember right, it was in the very first offering that Amazon gave of, you know, people will vote on which of these shows should be picked up. So we talked a little bit more about that gimmick, probably, than the show itself. But we did talk about the pilot here, and maybe one more episode, Then I proceeded to not watch any of the rest of it while accumulating praise from all different friends and feeling like I I really wanted to. And then for this segment... Isaac kindly caught me up on everything that happened in seasons two and three. As he correctly stated, those there's sort of a reset after those two seasons. So once you start season four, you sort of know all the characters from the pilot. And those are the main, that's everybody who goes to Israel over the course of, of season four. And uh, and so because it's so addictive, this show is only half an hour long. It tends to end on kind of emotional cliffhanger moments and I wound, wound up watching nine episodes in a row. So I've seen all but one from season four. And, uh, and now I'm going to go back and fill in the holes because it's wonderful. It's just wonderful writing. This family yeah. completely comes alive. And uh, yes, there's that attempt, which is very common now in cable television shows, to create these awful narcissistic characters that are still somehow lovable. But to me, the lovability really prevails by season four. There's really a warmth in this family and a, a sense that everyone's story matters in the family. It's not at all just Mora's story of, of coming mm-hmm. out as trans. It's there are so many stories going on besides Maura's. There's all three of her children having, you know, various gender and sex related and also just professional and, you know, addiction related and other kinds of uh, encounters and, uh, and traumas and problems to solve. And, and then there's the character uh, played by Judith light, Shelley, the, uh, the, the wife of, Mora, who has now established this this friendship with her, that in season four I've really loved seeing develop.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean it gets it it gets at something so true about how families, in addition to being an aggregation of individuals, are also living organ are, are also constitute a single living organism, and 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 health and sickness kind of get distributed. You know, there, there, there's, there's been 20 years now, I mean, since Seinfeld of malignant narcissism excused as funny and a, and a way for all of us to excuse our, excuse our own malignant narcissism through the kind of ultimate horrible lovability of such characters. I think this completely transcends that dialectic in a way the show is so perceptive about what makes a person a person and 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 how shot through with, you know, hypocrisy and befuddlement um people are and what they're trying to work out with one another. And there's a wonderful moment where Jeffrey Tambor, where Maura says to um, Gabby Hoffman, uh, warns her against, I think, the relationship with Cherry Jones, who plays an Eileen Miles-like uh, a feminist poet with whom she strikes up a quite complex sort of mentor-mentee relationship. And anyway... That that that's also that they're they're also having an affair and 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 Jeffrey Tambor says something about well don't get too involved it's just, he says something about being too dogmatic right and and for a show that's so self consciously derived from the gender studies revolution that happened in the eighties and nineties on American campuses its inability to be dogmatic about anything or anybody is to me is just a remarkable achievement. So, Isaac, I completely agree with you. There's something about the subtlety with which the actual portraits are being drawn, not only on the page, but in each of the performances, right? I mean, there's just the kind of leitmotif throughout the whole show where the three siblings all go off alone and interact with one another, which has clearly been a coping mechanism of theirs uh you know since they grew up in a household with a lot of secrets and unexpressed desires in it ill expressed desires in it and and every one of those just rings so true i often wonder whether they're improvised i mean they just have such a spontaneity to them um it's really a it's really a, a, a beautifully realized work of you know popular and dramatic art, right?
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And one of the things that at least for me made the third season kind of difficult going is that it scatters the three siblings and they rarely spend any time on camera together. And so when they do at the end of the third season, it's a real relief to see them together again. And the fourth season has a lot of them kind of bottled up in a bus together. Um, I think you hit on something that's really important, which is that you know, Transparent isn't dogmatic. It develops its themes and its ideas dialectically. There's always argument. There's always another argument to be made, which and is
2: very Jewish as well. right? It's very Jewish. Right? It's a Seder dinner with everybody yelling at it, each other.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so what I think is really bold is that it takes that approach and brings it to bear on a subject that it's basically been left off screen for most of the show, which is Israel and Zionism. And the result is that you have an American television show saying things that I never thought I would hear on an American, on American television, maybe in my lifetime. You know, you have a, there's a scene where one of the characters, uh, refers to the settlements of stolen land, for example. And there's, there's a part where, where, uh, activists connected to, to BDS, the, the boycott divest and sanctions movement, which is looking to bring financial pressure on Israel to, um, end the occupation, uh, you know, where they're given room to speak their viewpoint. Um, but the show then takes that viewpoint and puts it in contrast with, you know, hardcore Zionists sort of uh, mealy-mouthed liberals who don't know what they're talking about. You know, you know like it, it all exists as part of that ongoing Seder table screaming match that makes the show so thrilling and so delightful. All right.
0: Well, season four of Transparent has dropped. It's binge ready uh, in case you haven't gotten to it already. As always, we are eager to hear what you think about it at Facebook.com slash CultureFest. We regard it as a terrific show still in its prime. All right, moving on. Just a note, uh, Benjamin Frisch, producer, uh, dropping in here uh, to say that Tuesday while we were recording the show, um, Ronan Farrow's New Yorker piece about Harvey Weinstein uh, came out, but we did not uh, see it during our recording and um, which is why it's not referenced in this segment. Thanks. Well, um, now a very—I'm uh, sorry—to say dreary topic. Harvey Weinstein uh, was thought of as kind of an old-fashioned mogul, a throwback. He was, a, as I said, a force of nature, a force of culture. He combined taste and power, created a generation of classic indie movies like *Goodwill Hunting* and *Pulp Fiction*. Uh, it turns out he was an old-fashioned mogul in another way. The ca- casting couch apparently accompanied him everywhere, and I think that that's just the glib way to put uh, put it relative to, frankly, relative to how. Rep- utterly repulsive his behavior apparently was for which he has now been fired by the company that bears his own name in addition to the stories of revolting behavior uh, and his firing, now comes also a symbolic fight over Hollywood's complicity in a culture of sexual abuse, as many women prominent in that industry have come forward. Pr- prominent among them, Lena Dunham, who wrote beautifully about it for the New York Times, are now saying, and also uh, predictably from the American right, uh, accusation of a huge double standard that Fox News was uh, had its feet held to a very different fire than left-wing Hollywood is. I don't think there's much substance to that. I doubt you guys will either, but it is certainly worth mentioning. Dana, let me start with you. Uh, You attend festivals. You go to screenings. You are what every film critic is, kind of part of it, kind of not part of the monster known as Hollywood. Uh, How much of this had you heard about previously? And uh, talk to me what your reaction is now that it's out in the open.
2: Honestly, I mean, this is... Maybe indication that I'm not doing enough reading of the trades or something, but this game is a total surprise to me. I mean, that there is this kind of sleaze going on in the industry is not shocking to me, but that Weinstein in particular was perpetrating these acts over this long period of time. There's a long story by Anne Helen Peterson in BuzzFeed talking about You know, essentially the Whisper campaign or campaign is the wrong word, but the Whisper network that has existed about these rumors within Hollywood for all of these years and that there have been blind items on page six and that she mentions that there have been jokes dropped about this on various shows, including 30 Rock. And uh, I guess to me, maybe because I'm in New York and not within the industry and not writing on the industry per se, but just on its products, this had completely gone over my head. And so these allegations were surprising and shocking to me. And I guess I would have to come to the defense of someone like, for example, Meryl Streep, who wrote a letter, a sort of, you know, public condemnation of Harvey Weinstein saying, I knew nothing about all of this, and was then roundly, you know, lambasted on Twitter for supposedly lying and covering up and and defending him. It seems to me completely credible that a person who lives in Connecticut, as Meryl Streep does, and as immensely powerful in the industry, I mean, he needs her, obviously, much more than she needs him, right? That she would not have been privy to or subject to this treatment it was something that went down to the less powerful not up to the more powerful
1: i also think it is absolutely crazy making to me that like where we're going now is let's attack judy dench and meryl streep oh, my oh yeah you know, I mean, like 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 it's wholly predictable that the conversation would quickly move to like fox news point scoring and let's figure out a way that we can blame women for it but it's still absolutely revolting i you know i think that when these kinds of stories come out, I think it it is in many ways a moment for lots of us to think about ways that we might be complicit in these sorts of systems without meaning to be or without knowing that we are. You know, it's an opportunity, I think, for a lot of us to think about ways that we may be complicit in these systems, whether we mean to be or not. Uh, but the way that we as a culture turn this into, you know, liberal and conservative point scoring or ways to further attack women um, has been really upsetting to watch.
2: And I have to say, mm-hmm. it's not yep. just women. There was an article in The Guardian this morning that was sort of condemning this paragraph-long list of, of male stars who have not responded yet to the controversy. I, I don't know. It just, it, the fact, the quickness with which all of this becomes, you know, a sort of um, virtue signaling, right, and a way of, of of showing that you're on the right side of history is really one of the more unappealing, you know, aside from Weinstein's behavior itself, is one of the more unappealing things about this whole story.
0: Yeah. Right, I mean, and and it's it's. I mean, this is a, this is a narrative that has a villain. The villain's name is Harvey Weinstein. The I, you know, the idea that we're being morally deep or subtle by pointing the finger elsewhere is absolutely disgusting and, and wrongheaded. I mean, and I, I want to say that the Lena Dunham piece I really want to point to again. Um, I think you guys agree um, was uniquely um, precise, lucid, um, and uh, morally correct in a serious way about the issue of Hollywood's complicity and uh, and a culture of silence. I mean, she says, men of Hollywood, what are you sorry for? What will you refuse to accept anymore? Um, uh, so, I mean, there is obviously, when it, I'm now contradicting myself, but there is obviously a way in which extrapolating from Harvey Weinstein to a culture of sexual abuse in Hollywood is morally imperative. The idea that the women of Hollywood are part of that circle of complicity or that it somehow breaks into a left and right divide, that's monstrous and completely wrongheaded. I will, however, say one thing, which is that in, in the midst of an otherwise very bad axe-grinding Weekly Standard article that I sort of resent having agreed to read, a very good point was made, which is that among the reasons why this was allowed to happen uh, unreported uh, for so long in part, was there's an old culture of power that's now collapsing, and that not only has to do with something like the beginnings of the collapse of the theatrical release model in which Weinstein and Miramax thrived which is kind of a movie budgeted between 15 and 50 million dollars that mid-budget prestige film that market has shrunk uh, drastically in favor of streaming and 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 tentpole huge tentpole releases so that was happening to begin with but the larger point he made which i thought was somewhat perceptive was you know there there was a nexus of glossy magazines, um, you know, kind of Condé. Nast, back when Condé Nast was a juggernaut and had a ton of power, uh, and its flagship, Vanity Fair, was at the center of it. The kind of Tina Brown universe of the 1990s as it bled a little bit into the post-9-11 world involved enormous amounts of horse trading, uh, access for publicity, um, uh, and, uh, you know, a v- relatively small Rolodex of players uh, at the upper end, negotiating, negotiating with one another um, in order to keep the, the the in order to keep the behemoth alive and, and omnipresent, and um, and Harvey Weinstein was at the center of it. I mean, he knew all of those people. He knew who to call to crush a story uh, or to uh, discourage one. And so, I I do think that. That, that, that world has fallen apart, right? Like, the journalism now is no longer as clearly, especially in the age of the internet, but also the collapse of print as a, as a business model is no longer at the center of this kind of tentacular beast um, at, in which someone might be able to enforce silence quite as easily. but. I want to return to the other point, which is that I, I, I hate as much as anybody the left-right political divide being somehow superimposed on this story. That just seems egregiously stupid and, and, and f- frankly, masturbatory to me. That said, isn't there something to be thought through about Hollywood's relationship to both uh, sex and power in the sense that we we so expect in a way that it's populated by enormously powerful men um, and very vulnerable uh, and very beautiful young women who are fame-seeking and that we have a kind of... Uh... We do have something of a double standard when it comes to Hollywood, that we expect that this is happening. I mean, wouldn't it be a... I guess the way of asking the question is, wouldn't this be a watershed moment in American morals if all of a sudden what are now becoming hopefully more universal standards of respect and equity in the workplace were, were actually really rigorously enforced in Hollywood?
2: Yeah. I mean, the rigorous enforcement seems like it's going to be a long ways away, maybe generations away. But even the fact that there's this kind of breaking up of, you know, what was such a established, I mean, you know, I can't go making allegations about people that are long gone. But these kind of discussions have been happening since Hollywood has existed. And in all the research that I've been doing about early film you know there's there is absolutely in place a, a a patriarchal system where young beautiful women in the 20s were flocking to hollywood trying to get cast and there were all kinds of scandals having to do with moguls essentially handing them around or or having parties to which young actresses were invited as essentially planned escorts you know for other other rich moguls And that whole world has been so hidden for so many generations that it does feel like, as do many things in the Trump era, as if something ugly that was always there just out of sight has just broken into view. I have no idea what the next step is to try to dismantle that system, but it seems like people are starting to ask for it and press for it.
1: Yeah. And I also think another thing that's happened, in, and this is a positive thing, is n- norms around what is newsworthy in this subject matter, I think, have changed pretty rapidly because of largely, I think, the, the turning point is actually Cosby and the Cosby allegations. Um, one of the pieces we read uh, for this week was a piece in The Wrap where a, a reporter says that that she brought – These, you know, uh, some collection of Weinstein wrongdoing stories to the New York Times in the early aughts, and they didn't pursue the story. They said, he's not a politician or, you know, a a public, he doesn't hold public office, so I don't understand why this is newsworthy, which itself is a change from the, you know, Clinton impeachment trial where we're like, well, is, does this really, you know, a lot of people were like, you know, well, but does this really matter that he cheated on his wife or whatever? And so now it's like, well, but he's not a politician. And then Cosby happens. And now it's like, actually, these are powerful public figures. And these stories are newsworthy. I think the Weinstein story hopefully will create an opening for more of these kinds of stories to be, you know, rigorously reported and released and will hopefully lead to the kinds of shifts that we're talking about.
2: As recently as the show Entourage, which I think I saw mentioned in in somebody's, maybe it was Lena Dunham, in somebody's response to this Harvey Weinstein scandal, but that recently, right, that show just, finished existing i don't know a few years ago there was a movie of it and that was an undisguised celebration of this exact world of kind of you know the the achievement of enough power in hollywood to become a, a sexual mogul who can trade in mm-hmm. female flesh
0: yeah no exactly and 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 i i think a, a key revelation here is not only his behavior but, but 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 people women especially hammering home the point that for a man to use power to get sex it is almost by definition a sadistic act that I, mean, I can't speak to what happened between harvey weinstein or anybody i find the accounts completely credible i want to be clear about that but just extrapolating from them and assuming you know a degree of veracity to them i mean you're not just you're not just acquiring sex in that transaction you are experiencing your own power through the helplessness of the person in whom you know you are instilling a sufficient amount of fear to get them to perform acts they would not otherwise perform and i think it's important one of the ways that this may stop is when it becomes clear that that is among the ugliest things a human being can do to another human being. And the idea that you would do it, it will occur to some of these men that between them and their desire will come the realization that they're acting as monsters and not as cool kids or as moguls or as mockers or as Nietzschean, you know, supermen. But really, as as filthy, filthy scumbags, and 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 maybe something, some some of the bite of desire that they they feel or think they're feeling will will give way to that. And I think among among the things that are coming out now is just is just what it is to use power to get sex.
1: Before we wrap this segment up, I do want to say I think we should. Sort of tip our cap, or you know, what throw them in the air, whatever we do, um, to Jody Cantor, and Megan Tui, who rigorously reported this story, got it in the Times, got people to use their names, go on record. Uh, I mean, it's an incredible piece of journalism as well that has had an immediate impact. Uh, on on this issue and uh, uh, is just a really an incredible piece of reporting.
2: Oh, completely agree. And I feel like that did get lost in the uh, in the responses to it. I mean, there's been so many stories about, as you said, people who have either tried to report this story or decided not. Rebecca Traster wrote about considering pursuing this story and deciding not to for various reasons, including that Harvey Weinstein had physically threatened and attacked her then boyfriend at one at one party. Um, and the fact that Jody Cantor and Megan Tuhi had the courage and the rigor and took the time to really report the story outright may may change the history
0: of Hollywood. All right. Well, on that note, uh, this is uh, this is one to talk about, right? I mean, this is this is the, the disinfectant is going to be sunlight. Uh, so, if you feel the urge, come talk to about it with us at facebookcom CultureFest or anywhere. But um, here's hoping against hope, and era uh, has come to an end. All right, moving on. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dinah. What do you have?
2: Stephen, I have a double endorsement this week. I'm going to go go long. I'm going to be a you for a week and endorse two things. (laughs) Uh, The first is a very sobering, long-reported article in The Guardian by Paul Lewis that's about... It's about so many things. I mean, it is essentially about a group of tech executives from Silicon Valley who have now really soured on uh, social media and are really rethinking the essentially the consequences of what they've been inventing for the past few years. And uh, some of them, to varying degrees, are getting off of social media. Others are working within the industry from this this ethics angle of sort of trying to figure out, the uh, the negative consequences of this persuasive technology that they're inventing. For example, the inventor of the Facebook like button, the designer who first coded that button and got us all into this culture of of obsessive and addictive liking, has some really, really interesting things to say about the repercussions of that. And uh, it goes way beyond the sort of pico Iyer style, I personally am going to drop out and go to a Buddhist monastery in southern France, you know, kind of smug. Luddite position. And it goes way beyond that and actually really does start to think about what these kind of social media addictions and the, fe- the effect that they are having in the electoral system and on people's attention span and, and in all kinds of cultural realms. And uh, it's very sobering to read. It makes you want to change in some way your relationship to the internet uh, while realizing that you're not going to fulfill that pico or dream of somehow purifying yourself. And everyone I've shown it to, I've sent this link to a few people, everybody has said, this is really making me rethink some things. So that's one of the things I'm endorsing. It's called Our Minds Can Be Hijacked, The Tech Insiders Who Fear a Smartphone Dystopia. It's in The Guardian, and we'll put a link on our show page. My second endorsement is something I've never done before in this segment, but I'm going to endorse an Indiegogo campaign for something that I think is really worthwhile and wonderful and that I contributed to recently. So this past weekend, I went to the International Buster Keaton Society Convention in Muskegon, Michigan. I went in part to interview some people and report from there, and uh, and also just because I had always wanted to go, this is just sort of you know the the ground ground zero of the Buster Keaton weeds. Like if if you don't find somebody who knows the stuff that you want to find out there, you're not going to find them anywhere. And it was a wonderful weekend. Uh, it was much more than just scholarly talks. There was a live musical. There was a magic show. There was a baseball game on the field where Buster Keaton used to play as a teenager. It was a great event that I recommend to anybody who wants to go and maybe take their kid to a really really fun weekend in Michigan. Um, But one of the missions of the society is, of course, to preserve the legacy of, of Buster Keaton. And like everything else about Hollywood history... You know, silent film history has a way of disappearing and burying itself. And LA, God love it, has not been that historically great at preserving its monuments. It's always building over places that were absolutely crucial to the growth of the film industry and le- leaving them either unmarked or mismarked. And that is certainly the case with Keaton. So, this studio where he worked from I believe it was 19, I guess it would have been 1920 to 1929 or so, in which he made basically all of the great silent films that we know him for, 2 reelers and features as well. It's located on the corner of Lillian Way and Eleanor Street, I believe, in in L.A. I don't know what neighborhood that is because I'm not enough of an L.A. knower. And there is actually a a marker there, but the marker is on the wrong corner, so it is not actually at the site where the studio was. Oh, I forgot to mention that Chaplin also worked in this same building, right? So it was really a very historic Hollywood site. Chaplin worked there before Keaton took it over. Um, And the marker that's there is inaccurate, illegible, and in the wrong place. So one of the things the Buster Keaton Society is trying to do is make a better plaque, one that will last, put it in the right place with accurate information, and make it a place that people touring around Los Angeles can actually see a little piece of history. So if you want to contribute to this campaign, they're, I think, about $5,000 away from reaching their goal, and they have 20 more days to do it. We'll put a link on the show page to the Indiegogo site where you can go and help restore a plaque for Buster Keaton Studios in Hollywood.
0: Mm,
1: Love it. Um, Isaac, what do you got? I uh, I also have two uh, recommendations. The first is an album that came out, I think, a, a year ago uh, on New Amsterdam. Uh, it's by the jazz trumpeter and band leader Amir El Safar and his Two Rivers Ensemble. And the album is called Not Two, uh, as in the number two, Not Two. Um, it's a really, really gorgeous Uh, vital driving groovy blending of jazz traditions and uh, North African and Middle Eastern uh, traditional musical traditions and uh, a lot of times when people kind of try to mold those kinds of of work it it winds up having a certain lack of specificity It, it doesn't really resonate but this album is absolutely gorgeous it works Uh, both as a jazz album and as a north african album and uh it's recorded all on analog tape so it has a really beautiful full sound i really can't recommend it highly enough it's one of my my favorite favorite things that i've listened to this year uh that's amir el safar and two rivers ensembles not two on new amsterdam records and the uh second thing i want to recommend is a graphic novel that uh almost didn't come out because the the uh The shipping company that was bringing it to our shores went out of business and the boat that it was in was seized. But it's here and it's brilliant. And that's Emile Ferris's My Favorite Thing is Monsters, Volume 1. It's this absolutely incredible work that takes the form of a 10-year-old a comic book and monster movie fanatics kind of visual cartoon diary of her day-to-day life in late sixties, Chicago. Um, And it is wonderful. It's this kind of sui generis, work um that is about being you know working class in chicago it's also about the jewish american immigrant experience and the holocaust it's about monster movies it's about a little girl trying to solve the mysteries of her family and her apartment building and day-to-day life and it is one of the most inventively drawn and put together things i've ever read maybe one of the best graphic novels of the decade and that is oh, wow. uh, Emile Ferris's. My favorite thing is Monsters, Volume One. Magnificent.
0: Um, all right. Well, Dana, you know, on a day that you endorse two things, that means I have to endorse how many? You think? <laughs> seven. <laughs> I, I don't, don't know, know what the seven. algorithm
2: yeah. is, but yeah, it's it's, it's definitely <laughs> yeah, they, an exponential multiplication. <laughs>
0: Yeah, um all right. Well, but uh, so I'm so it's going to be with with immense restraint that I only endorse three things. The first very quickly is uh Tom Petty will not leave me. Um, I'm sure he never will, but it's been very intense uh, in the aftermath of his uh um really premature death, but uh he was he was so good. And just to give people who really quickly just go just go to YouTube and listen to him do the old uh Solomon Burke classic Cry to Me. Uh, live at the No Nukes concert. I think there's only audio right now up on YouTube, but it just shows you how tight that band was and what a good singer he was. I mean, really underrated singer. He used to kind of do more singy singing maybe in the 70s during some of those old, I, I had a bootleg of him from like 75. I just, you know, in which he did that that song, Cry to Me, so beautifully. And they, just the harmonies of the band, that band was fucking tight. Tom Petty is so missed. Uh, very quickly, um, in Troy, New York, Dana, I know you're going to be there next week. Um, it's called Sunhee's Farm and Kitchen. It's a Korean um, Korean food joint in Troy. It is so good. If you are anywhere near the Capital District, um, seek them out for lunch or for dinner. There's also a really cool bar attached to it. Those guys are doing great freaking work. And finally, I've only just uh, discovered and caught up with the band called Yumi Zuma. Uh, I don't know if anyone knows them. Just really poignant, dreamy, weird uh pop music
2: steven our intern daniel is pumping his fist in the booth he apparently loves yumi zuma
0: oh man daniel my bro no i love i love these guys and they're they're there's like you can look it up they're like kind of there's kind of an interesting gimmick where they live one of them lives in paris one in new york and one in new zealand and they drop box a lot of the tracks and then and then blend them into the band but it's like just it's just fantastic dream pop um uh, that I was amazed I hadn't discovered already. So if you like them, uh, tell me about it on Facebook. All right, Isaac. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, full S FOP now, special friend of the program. I, I don't know about ultimate, but I think we're definitely at S FOP. Dana, what do you think? <laughs>
2: yeah. All right, then he has to come back to keep on struggling for that ultimate status. Uh,
1: I would love to do so. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's like Scientology, really, um levels. <laughs> and, um, uh,
0: Dana, thank you so much. That was a blast.
2: Great show. Thanks, Steve.
0: All right, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us, as always, at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. Uh, Andy Bowers, he's, uh, as always, the chief poobah officer, the CPO of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of Panoply. So there's an entire roster of very like-minded but also quite diverse shows at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest for Isaac Butler and Dana Stevens. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you. We'll see you soon.